Now that this week in history is history, it's time to sit back, relax, and relive the week that was in U.S. history class. Coming to you live from 185, Mr. Palumbo is ready to take you on a journey into the past to understand the present and change the future. This is Pushcast. Hello all, and welcome to the Pushcast for the second week of May. 2019. I'm Eric Palumbo. Uh, you are here for an episode that we are entitling FDR from the New Dale to Neutrality. Uh, this is going to track uh, Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, his first three terms in office. Um, the reason why we're setting up and organizing the episode this way um, and just focusing it on uh, the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt is because on your regents exam, uh, which you can be taking in uh, a little over a month here, um, Franklin Roosevelt is is a really big part of it. Um, on average, we count he usually has um, usually six, seven, or eight multiple choice questions just about his presidency, and that accounts for you know fourteen, fifteen, sixteen percent um, of the multiple choice questions. Um, that's not counting any possible um, thematic essay topics or, or DBQs or DBQ outside information. Um, so because <clears throat> Um, there's such um, uh, a big emphasis placed on his presidency. Uh, we're going to frame the episode that way um, as a good way to review all things Franklin Roosevelt. Um, and again, just from his first uh, three terms in office, that's what we're able to cover um, the last little bit in class here. Um, <clears throat> now the, a reason why he is, is such a, a large part of the Regents exam is, is because he's, first of all, he's president for so long. Um, the only president um, to, to be in office for more than two terms. And, of course, he's um, in there for um, or four terms, wins four elections and dies during his fourth term. Um, another reason why uh, there's uh, such a big emphasis placed on the, the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt is there's so much going on during his presidency. Um, there's a ton going on at home uh, in the United States, which is where we're going to start um, uh, talking about here first. And then there's also a lot of things going on abroad. Um, which will be the second part of our conversation and, and lead it into um, what are we going to be doing next week. Uh, I'll be focusing more on, on international affairs during uh, Franklin Roosevelt's presidency and after. Uh, but to get started, um, again, the title here we're using is From New Deal to Neutrality. Um, so we're going to start with that New Deal portion. Um, the New Deal, obviously, um, are government programs uh, that are put into place during Roosevelt's presidency to help people that are struggling during the Great Depression. Now, bringing up the Great Depression, we need to go back a little bit um, and, and describe that, right, so we can understand the historical circumstances that, that lead to the New Deal. Um, obviously, during the Depression, we see tremendous amounts of unemployment, you know, upwards of 25% unemployment in the country, um, um, uh, a lot of homelessness and despair uh, in the cities, uh, banking crisis, you know, banks closing, people losing their life savings, uh, foreclosures. Um, also out uh, in the Dust Bowl, so folks in rural areas out in the Great Plains are struggling with environmental disaster, um, of dust storms out there, severe drought uh, combined with high winds, uh, just literally, you know, blowing people's um, farms away you know, blowing their soil away. Um, so they basically, you know, feel like they're, you know, living on, you know, like a giant basketball court. Um, so just struggles going on all over the country. Um, and it's really difficult to to avoid those. Um, so we see President Roosevelt uh, come into office in 1932 
um, in the election of 1932, beating the incumbent, uh, the incumbent Republican, Herbert Hoover. Uh, obviously, um, you know, running for re-election in the midst of a Great Depression um, is, is not going to be very successful. So Hoover obviously loses in a landslide. Um, his idea of rugged individualism, um, telling people that are struggling during the Great Depression that they need to pull themselves out of it, that it's not the government's problem um, or the government's responsibility to help them personally, um, is not a message that's going to resonate um, with those folks that are struggling so deeply in the midst of the Great Depression. Um, where on the other side, you have Franklin Roosevelt, um, who's promising a new deal for the American people to use uh, the power of the United States government. Um, to help individuals. And that's really um, the new part of the New Deal. The government is going to help individual people for the first time. Um, the way that the government is going to help people is by uh, creating a number of programs uh, that are aimed to help individuals with their specific uh, needs and concerns. Uh, the New Deal is broken into three different phases of relief, recovery, and reform. And we compare this in class to uh, fixing uh, like a broken leg or a broken ankle. Right? The first thing that you need as soon as you break your ankle is immediate relief. You need this help right now. Uh, so these are programs that are aimed to help people that are suffering at the time. Uh, the main thing that folks are suffering with um, is lack of money. Um, that comes from from no jobs, you know, really high unemployment rates. So um, a lot of those first relief programs are jobs programs, jobs to put people to work um, doing various things. Uh, the WPA is the largest example of that, the Works Progress Administration. Um, and this pays people to do um, almost any task that they could think of, any um, profession or talent or skill. Uh, or vocation that they had uh, before the Great Depression, uh, the WPA would find a way to give you money um, to perform this task. And, and a big thing with these New Deal programs um, is that they serve a double benefit. Um, they give someone a paycheck and puts money in their pocket, um, which is a personal benefit to them. But also the work that they perform, that they're getting paid to do, um, needs to have some sort of larger benefit for the community. Um, so the WPA, for example, the Works Progress Administration, um, would pay people to build roads, build bridges. Um, one example that we have here uh, in Newark is the Kelly School. The Kelly School was built uh, by, the w by the WPA. Um, and it wasn't just construction projects. It was everything from building golf courses to painting murals. Uh, if you were an actor or artist out of work during the Great Depression, you'd get paid um, to do paintings or to put on puppet shows for children or to put on um, community theater um, for the community. All right? And the WPA would pay you to do that. Um, there's organizations like the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, uh, paid people to go out uh, into nature and to maintain uh, the national parks, uh, paid them to plant trees out on the Great Plains uh, to help prevent those dust storms, um, to act as a windbreak. So all sorts of government programs um, to get people jobs and to get money into people's pockets that need it. Um, the next phase, recovery. Um, this is just like putting a cast on that broken ankle. I aim to make sure uh, that these problems don't get any worse uh, and to make sure that the economy is stabilized. Um, these are programs like the Agricultural Adjustment Act, um, paying farmers actually not to plant crops, um, and in some cases paying them to destroy their crops and their livestock um, in order to, to fix prices and to raise the price um, of those farm items all right, to make sure those don't slip any further. Um, and the final uh, set of programs 
uh, we see later in the New Deal are ref reform programs. Um, and, we, and we liken this to you know, wearing an ankle brace. Uh, this is to make sure uh, that these things don't happen again, to make sure that we don't see any future depressions. Um, and these are programs that uh, many of us still recognize today. They're still in place, uh, serving that same purpose, to make sure we don't have any future depressions. Um, things like the SEC, Security and Exchange Commission, um, working as a, an umpire, a referee, if you will, for the stock market uh, to make sure there's no more stock market crashes. Um, things like Social Security, uh, which provides um, a, a lifelong benefit uh, for folks that are unable to work. Uh, for the most part, these are people that are um, too old to work or to, to perform certain tasks. So uh, once you hit the age of 65, uh, you can earn or uh, get paid through Social Security Administration. Um, and that's a New Deal program, something that starts in, in 1935 um, and is still around today uh, to make it so you know folks are unable to work, um, still have money in their pockets, still have income coming in, um, and aren't homeless, and, and you know they're able to still pay their bills. Um, so those are, you know, the, uh, Social Security is kind of the main uh, reform program that we're familiar with. Uh, FDIC is another one. I think we see all the signs when we go to the banks and drive up uh, to the bank tellers and hear it on the at the end of bank commercials. Uh, you know, FDIC insured. This is that program that um, gives people their money back if a bank does close. Folks get their life savings back, um, which was a major problem during the Great Depression and a contributing factor to it. Um, and it helps to build confidence back in the banks. People can feel safe uh, putting money in the bank again because they know if it does um, happen to close, they're going to get their money back. And we've all heard stories of those old relatives that um, you know don't trust the banks and put the cash in the mattress or you know buried out in the backyard. Uh, the FDIC is there to um, ease those fears and to bring more money back into the banking system and give people some security. Um, so those are uh, just a sampling of New Deal programs and, and what their aims are. Uh, generally quite popular. Obviously, Franklin Roosevelt's elected four times. Um, so, you know, very popular with the American people and just showing that um, the government is making an effort uh, to help people that are struggling um, and to recognize that fact. Um, these programs and FDR himself um, don't go without criticism. Um, there are criticisms of FDR and the New Deal uh, that we explored as well um, and that we did uh, some argumentative writing about. Um, some of those criticisms are obviously the first one, being elected four times. Um, you know, he's depicted um, during this era uh, sometimes as a king, a uh, dictator, uh, you know, being president for you know, 13 plus years um, could be seen as you know, kind of a monarchy or kind of dynastic, right? So um, that's one criticism leveled at FDR. Obviously, he's elected this many times, so you know, a majority of Americans um, do support him. Um, another criticism of, of the New Deal itself is, is how expensive it is. Most of these programs um, start with give money. You know, give money to a certain group of people or give money that lost um, their money in bank closers or give money to people to pay their mortgages. Um, and this money is coming from somewhere. It's coming from the government. So the New Deal, uh, putting the country in tremendous amounts of debt, um, this you know, unprecedented government spending um, is criticized at the time. Um, another criticism of the New Deal is that it uh, can be seen as socialism. You have the government sending out checks to people. You have the government becoming very involved in the economy and very involved in people's lives. Um, so that's criticized at the time as being socialistic. 
And a final criticism um, of the New Deal is that it ruins that old Hoover concept of rugged individualism. This concept that if you're struggling, if you're unemployed, if you've lost your home, um, it's your responsibility to do something about it, to um, lift yourself up by the bootstraps, as they would say. Um, and, and the New Deal, having the government you know, step in and provide employment or provide money back if you lost your um, you know, money and savings account or uh, to provide farm assistance is seen as getting rid of um, that, that spirit of rugged individualism and helping yourself out. Um, so there's just a few criticisms on the New Deal, right? It's not all good. Um, and the final criticism of FDR is his greatest criticism. Even people at the time uh, that love FDR, even people today, um, he's continuously ranked, you know, in the top five of the best presidents of all time. Um, even his his supporters criticize him for um, this last bit here, um, which comes to be known as court packing. Uh, during the New Deal, um, uh, the Supreme Court strikes down a few of his programs as unconstitutional, um, and. You know, as most presidents, that would happen too. They'd kind of, you know, go back to the drawing board and um, try to tweak the program a little bit to make it fit into the framework of the Constitution. Uh, Roosevelt has a plan, though, to add six extra justices to the Supreme Court. There's nine judges already. He's going to add six, uh, making it 15. And naturally, you know, one of the powers of the presidency is, is selecting Supreme Court judges. Um, he would pick six Supreme Court judges that are sympathetic, right, that support his New Deal programs. Um, and this would have been seen as, as a huge power grab, right? It would have been the end of, of the Supreme Court's check uh, on the presidency, right? He would have had just a bunch of yes men on the Supreme Court. So um, obviously his supporters at the time, you know, talk him out of it. Congress um, in no uncertain terms tells him this plan's not going to fly. Uh, but just the idea of wanting to do that. Um, is is a major criticism of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, thankfully, it doesn't work. Uh, this court packing scheme. We still only have nine Supreme Court justices today, um, and that check um, on the government um, is still there from the Supreme Court. So that's uh, kind of the New Deal itself in a nutshell here. Um, so while that is going on at home, it's important to think about history not just as a, as a two-dimensional timeline. You know, where we go from one thing to the next. Uh, but to step back every once in a while and zoom out and understand that multiple things are going on at the same time. Um, you know, just like you would, you know, read a newspaper. There's all sorts of different stories about different topics from all over the world, um, all happening on the same day. Um, and that's very much the case with Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. You know, while the Great Depression's going on and the Dust Bowl's moving through the plains and he's passing New Deal programs, um, and he's wrangling with the Supreme Court. While that's happening, World War II is, is beginning in Europe at the same time. Um, so, you know, the, the last few days of the week here, we shifted our focus in that direction. Um, there's a lot of similarities between the start of World War One for the United States and the start of World War II. Uh, the main one, obviously, being that we want to stay neutral, right? We always want to listen to... Um, George Washington from his farewell address, and we don't want to get involved in European affairs. Um, but this time, we're even more strongly uh, wanting to, to stay neutral, right? Because we've learned our lessons from World War I. World War I, we wanted to stay neutral. We tried our best uh, for three years, but in that final year of the war, we do get dragged into it eventually. Um, we don't want that to happen with World War II. 
right? We want to be uh, definitively neutral and not get involved at all whatsoever. Um, so some plans are put into place to make that happen. The first thing put into place to make that happen are the neutrality acts. Neutrality acts are a set of laws in the 19, mid uh, to late 1930s um, that basically say the United States is not going to be trading or selling any war material um, or trading with any country that's at war. Um, and it's important to note that the first Neutrality Act being passed in 1935 is a full four years before World War II even officially begins. So even when we hear rumblings of, of conflict um, in Europe, you know, we come out quickly with the Neutrality Acts um, and say, you know, just so everybody knows, the U.S. is not going to get involved. Um, those plans change once the war begins, um, and we see you know, our closest allies, France and England, uh, struggling so much against Hitler uh, in Germany. Uh, we switch to a cash-and-carry policy. Uh, cash-and-carry, just like the name suggests, we will sell uh, materials to countries that worn out. We'll, we'll sell materials to our allies. Um, but there has to be on a cash-and-carry basis. They need to pay cash for it right away when they buy it, and they have to carry it. They have to send their own ships to come pick up the materials and transport it themselves. This is because we learned that lesson from World War I. Right? World War I, we continued to trade with the Allies, but our ships continually got sunk uh, by Germans in their unrestricted submarine warfare. Um, we learned our lesson. We're not going to let that happen again. Um, so if Allies want to purchase materials from us, they can. Uh, but again, they have to ship it themselves on a cash-and-carry basis. Um, and then finally... Uh, by the time we get to 1940, and um, France has been overrun by the Germans, um, the Nazi Germans and the Nazis are continually attacking Great Britain, um, and uh, you know during the London Blitz, and it looks like things are dire for the British. We switch to a lend-lease policy, uh, the Lend-Lease Act. Just as the name would suggest, uh, we're going to be lending war materials now um, to the British. Right, so we're not even going to charge them money for it. We're just going to give them uh, what they need. All right, tanks and um, you know cannons and guns and, and ammunition. Uh, we're just going to give it to them, right, because they need it. Um, this is a really hard sell for Franklin Roosevelt. All right, he just has to you know really be a strong politician here because again, the American people have no uh, desire to go to war. Right, they don't want to send their sons and brothers and husbands uh, to another world war. Uh, on the other side of the ocean. Uh, so he needs to pitch this to the American people. Um, and the analogy that he uses uh, to sell this is, think if your neighbor's house is on fire um, and they you know, quickly run over and they ask you for a garden hose. You know, Are you going to charge them for that garden hose? No, you're just going to give it to them. right? So our neighbor's house is on fire. The British, they're in a crisis. We're just going to give them what they need. Um, and be good neighbors. And the selfish benefit of that is um, our house won't catch on fire, right? We'll let them fight the fire. We'll let them fight the threat um, so we won't have to, all right? And with this idea, the United States becomes uh, what's known as the arsenal of democracy, right? We'll provide the weapons, right? We'll supply the ammunition, um, but you guys do the fighting, all right? And if you guys do the fighting, we're not going to have to. Right, so that Nazi threat, hopefully it ends in Great Britain. All right, the fire doesn't spread to our house. So that's how, how Roosevelt successfully uh, pitches the Lend-Lease Act to the American people. Um, and Congress signs it, and we begin 
um, giving war materials to the British um, so they can fight the Nazis. Um, again, so we don't have to send our own men into the fight. Um, that's where we, uh, you know, we leave off uh, for the week. Um, a little bit of a shortened week here with the, 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 the field test today. So, um, you know, that's where we end it. When we start next week, uh, we're going to start next Monday uh, with Pearl Harbor. The U.S. is going to be thrust into the war, um, whether we want to or not. Um, so that's going to, you know, take up our time next week. But, um, again, um, you know, make sure you're reviewing your things for Franklin Roosevelt, a big, uh, big, um, you know, outsized part of the, the, the multiple choice portion of the readings exam. Um, so review all things Roosevelt, um, you know, the Great Depression, the New Deal, everything up through neutrality. Um, you know, every time we bring up a foreign policy thing, it's always a good reminder um, that, th that this were a, a thematic uh, essay. We always want to talk about those historical circumstances, all the things that lead up to it. Um, so, you know, if this were a writing task, writing about, you know, neutrality before World War II, you would go all the way back to George Washington, the farewell address, talking about neutrality and, you know, lead up our foreign policy before, before World War I and how it didn't quite work and, you know, how we're you know, even more forceful about neutrality in World War II. Um, you know, it's important to make those historical connections and be thinking about those things um, as we go throughout the year and as we get closer to the end, um, gearing up for the Regents exam. Uh, we will uh, we'll leave you with that. Um, again, thank you very much uh, for listening. Make sure you subscribe, and um, we will see you next week. Bye-bye. We've enjoyed this look back into the week that was in U.S. history. The goal, as always, is to be enlightened. If not enlightened, at least entertained. And if not entertained, at least not annoyed. Now go grab that PS4 or Xbox, jump on Snap, Twitter, or Insta, and keep those streaks alive. While there, follow Mr. P on Twitter at Mr. P underscore Newark. And remember, this isn't just his story or her story, it's your story too.